slide 857, if you have the Coffee House Bible. We're in the last page of Matthew, Matthew 28. This is part four of all authority. This one I'm calling the scent. We've looked at the author. We've looked at um, the servant. We've looked at the hypocrites and now the scent. This is the last one. Authority is a big idea in Matthew. In the whole Old Testament, it's used 11 times. In Matthew alone, it's used 11 times. Scholars say this is like the key word to understanding Matthew or to understanding Jesus. At the end of his preaching, they say, wow, this guy's got authority. Whenever he goes and ministers, they're like, this guy has authority? Whenever he's on the way to Jerusalem, they're confused about his authority because he seems to be taking the, the low road. And then here at the end, it is the last noun used to describe the dignity of Jesus. It's authority. But authority makes us uncomfortable. Can I just talk about one way today that authority makes us uncomfortable? And today we're going to be reflecting on the Great Commission. And so I want to talk about the, uh, the audacity of evangelism. Has anybody ever felt uncomfortable with audacity? You know what I mean by audacity. It's, where it's just like, whoa, that was striking. And sometimes we're even uncomfortable with it when it comes to evangelism. Now, I've seen audacity, and I've seen people be afraid and uncomfortable by audacity. I've been in ministry a long time, so I've organized, you know, like door-knocking campaigns where you go and you knock on people's doors and you hope they invite you in. And it takes some audacity to do that. I have seen teenagers seemingly pray harder to just stay out in the blistering heat than to go into a comfortable house and have to have an audacious conversation. It's really uncomfortable to have that kind of audacity. It is for me, at least. I remember one time, I was my first ministry, I was my first kind of preaching role, and I organized, we were going to go into this rural community and to just knock on the doors of our neighbors, try to bless them, meet them, maybe share the gospel if they didn't know. As it turned out, they knew. <laughs> Except one guy let us in, and as he let us in, I may have told this story before, he was the, the most successful like home that we had that day, and he had a revolver behind his back, and he was just like... You see, it takes some audacity to step into someone's home. He didn't feel safe with us, and then we didn't feel safe with him. It's uncomfortable. Just the interaction, it's uncomfortable for a lot of reasons, I think. And so I think it's worth exploring culturally and then personally why some of that may be. Sometimes audacity for, feels more like judgment. It feels like hypocrisy. Um, I think a lot of the ways that I've been evangelistic have felt like that. I've probably been experienced more on that side. It burdens my heart to, to think about, how, so how do we do this in a healthy way that actually has good news, to use Kelsey's line, from the table? Jesus warned, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to make a single convert, but then you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. So sometimes the way that we go about audacious evangelism is actually counterproductive. It's more hypocritical and judgmental than, than healthy and strong. Bonhoeffer, he said, a false faith is capable of terrible and monstrous things. And so I'm, I'm mindful of this. At, at once, we have been on that side where we're like, I'm uncomfortable by this. Even Kelsey was saying, like, when it comes to use your words, I'm a little unsettled. And, and yet, there's this huge need for audacity when it comes to the audacity of evangelism today. A lot of people think of like other countries and other places as the mission field. That was how one of the great missionaries named Leslie Newbigin thought of it. 
And so he left the United Kingdom and he went to India and he started trying to make disciples in India. And he got involved in all kinds of things. And after his kind of tenure was up, he went back to the UK. And after he was gone, then he realized just how non-Christian his Christian culture was. There's a state church. You know, the king is actually over the... Everyone is baptized into the church, and yet no one is actually walking in discipleship to Jesus. And so he says that the mission field has come, like, here. It's, it's here in the West. So, you know, in the United States, there are more millions of people now than any other point who are not walking in discipleship to Jesus. In the last 30 years, a recent study came out in the book called The Great De-Churching. 40 million Americans have left church. 40 million. So if you add up, like the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening and all the Billy Graham Crusades, if you add up all those, combine them, that still doesn't compare to the number of people who have left the church in the last 30 years alone. There's millions of people. And so it's this tension where we need a revival, we need evangelism, And yet the very thing that we need, audacity, makes us afraid and uncomfortable. That's because there's some problems in our culture as we see authority. We talked about this especially in part one of this sermon series. That when it comes to authority, we don't really have any credibility as a church anymore. As it used to, whenever the church would evangelize, uh, it was as if the church had good news as if there were dots that just needed to be connected and connected to Jesus. But now there aren't any dots anymore. There's nothing to even connect to Jesus. The church has lost its credibility. Here's Ed Stetzer. He's an evangelism scholar. He was at Wheaton, I think, at the time of this writing. He says the first challenge is the reputation of the church. There are many people who have a general sense that the church is not the solution. In fact, they believe it may be part of the problem. In a world where there is a growing sense of outrage and the rise of cancel culture, churches that believe the gospel should be shared are seen as the problem. Cultural issues, our belief in the uniqueness of Christ, evangelicals' vocal affiliation with politics, questions of morality and sexuality, and more have caused the church to be seen as part of the problem instead of the solution. You see, when it comes to authority and credibility and legitimacy, we don't have it. We don't have the moral high ground. Used to, you might come with moral teachings from Scripture, and people would say, you know, I'm not living that way, but they would know that you were right. That was the more moral way to live, not anymore. Now, the the secular voices seem to claim a moral high ground and say the church is is actually part of the problem. It's not just an institutional authority that's the problem, though. There's that authenticity, that authority of self that's there. This is what we talked about in week one, but it really ties into evangelism because authenticity says, you can't tell me who I am and what I should do. And evangelism tries to do those two things. And it's like the whole cultural idea of I need to look inside myself to find myself means that you can't look into me and tell me who or what I need to do. The audacity to try to tell me something. And so audacity isn't just uncomfortable when we're doing it. Uncomfortable is really, audacity is really uncomfortable when we're receiving it. So Christians seem to believe this too. 
Tim Keller, he was writing before his death. He says, mostly younger adults, but they, they've been told repeatedly that no one has the right to tell others what to believe, so you shouldn't try to convert anyone. This very statement, of course, is self-contradictory, he says, since it's doing the very thing it forbids. Nevertheless, it's a slogan with enormous cultural power, and it's harder for younger Christians not to be swayed by it. And so there's this problem of authority, but I think the problem of authority is made even more weighty by what I'm calling the ease of superficiality. What I mean is that even if you wanted to go have a deep, meaningful, life-changing conversation with somebody, it's going to be really hard. Because most people would rather just scroll Instagram than talk to you about something meaningful. It's not that that's actually what they want, it's just what they've been habituated into. We're basically incapable of thinking about life and death and its meaning. Most people aren't reading books, exploring the deep questions anymore. That's not where we're at. So scholars, they say there's like three phases of evangelism within the generations of some here. There's the 20th century. The, they call it phase one. Phase one is like the Billy Graham crusades where he shows up and he has a stadium full of people. They sing just as I am. And he says, just come on down. The buses will wait. The buses will wait. It's because everyone in the stadium came on a church bus. The whole culture is Christianized. Everyone has a church. Whether or not they're believing what they're actually supposed to is one thing. And so he's converting Christians back to Christ. It's a very Christianized phase. Phase two is, is a little different. This is like the end of the 20th century. So when I was in college at the beginning of the 21st century, there's the rise of what was called the new atheists, like Richard Dawkins, and um, there's Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Bart Ehrman, and they're saying, well, what about all these defeaters and all these reasons not to believe? Here's the problem of evil. Here's the discrepancies in Scripture. Here's the doctrine of hell. That, that makes us all really uncomfortable. And so there was this generation of evangelism where it was you had to answer everyone's really hard questions. But in ministry, I, I started then, and I'm still in ministry now, 18 years later, and it's just not that way anymore. Nobody is having those conversations. Nobody's reading books, exploring the meaning of life anymore. Instead, they're just doing this. We'd rather turn on Netflix. And so Alan Noble, he wrote this book. It's called Disruptive witness. He's like, how do you even, how do you break through and disrupt in order to have an evangelistic conference? Even if you wanted to and had the audacity, you still got to get to this level of depth. And the ease of superficiality is just, it's just too pervasive. We're too distracted by the ubiquitous kind of pervasive digital streaming that's available to us. We'd rather turn on the ball game. The World Series is on after all. We'd rather scroll the, or watch the next Netflix series or whatever they do on TikTok, cats and teenagers dancing. I don't really know. I sound like an old man, but there's just better stuff, you know? Who cares? And so we have this need for audacity in a culture that's totally unable to accept it, and the people commissioned to do it are nervous about it, which leaves us here today unsure about how to, how to go and make disciples in Memphis. What would it look like? 
I feel like that's my task today is to try to figure out, given this issue, how do we as a church step into evangelism and disciple making? And Jesus, as Kelsey was just reflecting on beautifully, Jesus shows us that he has the good news authority to compel us to go share it. And he has the good news of his presence to help us go share it. So let's look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I think it's page 857 in the Coffee House Bible. Let's just start in verse 16. We're just going to look at a couple of verses today. This is the last scene of the Gospel of Matthew. Some have said this is the most important paragraph to understanding all that Jesus is trying to do. So I want to just take it phrase by phrase. You'll kind of see which phrase I'm talking about because it's highlighted on the screen. But it starts out with the 11 disciples. Frederick Bruner, his commentary, he says, 11? 11 walks with a limp. It's not the fullness, it's not the perfect number of 12. What happened? We start with Matthew 28, but really, the 12 are called in Matthew 10. The 12, remember, like Peter and Andrew and James and John and Judas. And they're given authority. That's our word in this series. They're given authority to heal and to cast out demons. Jesus, is, he gives gifts to his people to carry authority into the world. He wants to bless the world and he does it through his people. And he called these 12 men and he called them sent ones. That's what apostle means. It, in Greek, it's just sent, sent ones. You're messengers, you're sent. And so he takes these sent people, but what happened? Where did we go from 12 to 11? There's actually this major theme in scripture where God, he, he takes these imperfect people who were really hesitant and doubting. And he says, I've got a big job for you. Think of Abraham. Abraham's like, I can't do this. Moses is like, I can't do this. Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't do this. On and on and on. And so here it is. He, he calls these 12 people who are just not it. There's, of course, the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, who turns him over. And then in Matthew 26, it says that all deserted him and fled. All of them left. Jesus is going to the cross to die for their sins, to complete the thing he's been talking about for years as he's been discipling them, and they all leave him. These 11 disciples represent us, imperfect people who are filled with doubts, who are unable on our own strength to do the thing that Jesus has asked us to do. And so when the 11 show up, that means that here we are kind of by proxy and the 11 disciples, it says they went to Galilee, and they go to the mountain where Jesus is at. The mountain. Once again, in Scripture, this is a big theme. You could tell the whole story of Scripture using mountains. Remember, the Garden of Eden was this city on a mountain where you could experience God. There's these attempts to like build your own empires and own ways like Babel, but God is consistently met like at Mount Moriah with Abraham or Mount Sinai with Moses or Mount Carmel with Elijah. And so Matthew, he uses mountains all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Think of the Sermon on the Mount or right after he goes down the mountain, he goes up on the mountain to pray. He, he 
feeds 4,000 people on the mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. These mountaintop experiences are where he's showing you who God really is. But there's one in particular that's important here. It's the first mountain in Matthew. The first mountain, he's baptized, and he's led into the wilderness, and there in the wilderness, it says that he's tempted by the devil. Do you remember the temptation? In chapter 4, verse 8, it says that the devil takes him to the top of a very high mountain, and he looks over all the kingdoms of the world and says, this can be yours if you just bow down and worship me. I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And here on the mountain, Jesus is saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus didn't take the shortcut. He took the long road. He took the road of suffering. He went to the cross instead of the shortcut that was promised him. C.S. Lewis says that if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you get neither. And Jesus aimed at heaven and got heaven and earth on this mountain. It says it's the mountain where he told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now, it makes sense to worship. People are bowing down. Proskuneo, this is the word. Every time his authority is mentioned, it seems that people start bowing down to him. If worship makes sense. But man, do I feel resonance with a doubt. I think most Christians want a faith that has no doubts. So how do we get to a faith that has no doubts? Bruner, in his commentary, he's like, there's never been a faith that has no doubts. Christian faith is bipolar, he describes it. We're both believers and doubters, adoring and wandering, trusting and questioning. Is it not refreshing that Matthew admits this? There has never been a worshiper of Jesus who did not also doubt him. Peter doubted. James and John, the sons of thunder, who, who saw him on a cross, watched him go into the tomb, and met him a few days later. They doubted. And so if you come to Jesus with doubt, just know you're in good company. Remember, we're the 11 disciples, the ones who walk with a limp. We're not the perfect ones. We're not the complete ones. We're not the ones who have it figured out. We're the ones who have Jesus. And so they bow down before this one, recognizing his divinity. In their doubts, they come, and look what Jesus does. Verse 18, and Jesus came to them. Now, all throughout the New Testament, people come to Jesus. There's about 50 times where people come to Jesus. But in Matthew, there's only two times where Jesus comes to them. It's right here and on another mountain. It's called the Mountain of Transfiguration. You remember the story where Jesus, he takes kind of his inner circle, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they go up on the mountain, and he's changed. It's like a preview of resurrection, of what he's going to look like in his glory. And they're not really sure what to do with it. And so they're terrified, it says in Matthew 17, verse 7. They're terrified. And Jesus came to them. And he says, don't be afraid. You're, I think as you're reading Matthew, you're supposed to be thinking of that scene where he showed you what his resurrection power is going to be like. And here, instead of terrified, they're hesitant. 
That's what that word doubt means. It's, I think the best English translation in the 21st century is like, I can't even. It's like, they can't even. They don't know what to do with this guy who just came out of the grave. They're overwhelmed and hesitant. And Jesus came to them. He came to them, and then he said, all authority. You see, this all is a key word here. In some translations, it really masks this use of all. But here, here they are. It's all authority for all nations to obey all the things that I've commanded, and I will be with you all the time. It uses this word all, 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 all. It's actually the whole paragraph is structured around all. Beginning with his authority, ending with his presence, and there in the middle, from his power to his presence, it's like the program of baptizing and making disciples. So the first thing he says that he has is all authority in heaven and on earth. He's not just ruler of the kings of the earth. He's got that. But he's ruler of heaven too until he hands it over to the Father and all is all in all, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, it's all been given to me. I love this. That Jesus is in charge. Now, this is really intimidating to think about because it means Jesus can tell you what to do. And that's mostly how we think of authority. It's like, I don't really like authority. People trying to tell me what to do. But if Jesus is the authority, it means the one who touches the leper. It means the one who helps the broken woman who has this flow of blood. It means the one who can raise the child, the one who can go to the tomb of Lazarus. It means that he has jurisdiction everywhere over all nations and all people. He has jurisdiction beyond Palestine and Galilee and Samaria. He has jurisdiction to the ends of the earth. And if he has all authority in heaven and on earth, then it means he can put all of us back together. This is good news. Good news. Jesus is the king. And that, yes, it has the authority of a king that we have to do what he says. But it has the authority of, the, of a parent who can actually help the child who can come to the doubting and to the hesitant, to the broken and beaten down and say, I've got good news. This is the word of scripture. Let me just share a few, few places where authority is given to Jesus. He is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. Isaiah says the government will be on his shoulders. Paul says that God has placed all things under his feet and he has appointed him to be head over everything in the church. In Philippians 2, it says God has exalted Jesus to the highest place, and he's given him the name that's above every name. Paul says he's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. In the book of Revelation, it says that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the Alpha, and he is the Omega. He is the one who was, who is, and the one who's to come, the Lord, the Almighty One. He is it says, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All spiritual, metaphysical, philosophical, and religious power in heaven, but also all social, physical, political, and economic power on earth are his. He's in charge. So, therefore, given his authority and divinity, Go. Go. There's a whole world in need of people like us who feel broken and overwhelmed and hesitant and doubting. People who suffer, people who come 
close to death, people who mourn and weep. There's a whole world. Go. The apostles are given authority, and then they're sent. And here, in the Great Commission, he looks at all his disciples, and he says, you're all sent. Go. The whole church, all 11 of us, limping along imperfectly, are commissioned to go. This is the blessing. This is how it goes. Remember the the story of Abraham. He calls Abraham out of Babylon. And he says, I want you to go. I want you to leave. That way, I will bless you for you to be a blessing. The fullness, the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham to go is found here in the commission of all of us disciples to go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples is actually, if you're underlining words, this is the one to underline. In this whole thing, there's a bunch of verbs like go and baptize and teach. But this is the imperative. It's the only one. This is the imperative. Go and make disciples. Which is actually pretty striking because in the New Testament, nearly every occurrence of the hundreds of times that disciple language occurs, it's all a noun. This is one of two times where he says, go and make disciples. A disciple is a student. One commentator says, this is like a bookish word. This is a schoolish word. It's a slow thing. It's like a, a life on life, step by step, walking together. It's, it's a disciple, one who follows in the ways, in the will, and in the works, in the words of Jesus. He is the rabbi, he is the master teacher, and we are being schooled under him. And so he says, you need to go and enroll people in the school of Jesus. This is, go. so how and who? And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. It's interesting in the prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2, this is the beginning of the prophecy. It actually says that they go up on this mountain and it says the mountain of the Lord the Lord is going to make his home. He's going to make his temple. And it's going to be this place where all the nations are gathered in. And here we see all of this being fulfilled and these echoes of mountains and the Lord commissioning and the nations being brought in. And it's all happening in Jesus. And some of us, I think, have forgotten the reality that we were the ones who were far from God. That your American citizenship or your whiteness or your wealth isn't what makes you a part of the family of God that we were all Gentiles by birth. We are not part of ethnic Israel. I don't think anyone here is. We are here because Jesus wrapped up and tore the veil of separation and he ushered in the way to God and he did it for all of us, for all nations. So that the sovereignty and the authority and the dominion, the kingdom of Jesus that's never gonna end, it says it's for all peoples and all languages and all tribes in Daniel chapter seven. In Revelation seven, it's this great host of the multi-ethnic family of God that's there to worship. That's us. But it's also the people who have yet to enroll in the school of Jesus. And so he says, we have to go into all nations, all the nations, literally in the Greek. We've got to go. We've got to make disciples of all nations, and here's how. The first step, he says, is baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. Now, for a Jewish teacher to be so kind of me-centric, it's pretty startling. It's blasphemous. That's why they crucified him the day before. But here's the thing. If you crucify someone for blasphemy who claimed to be God, and then you meet him later, it turns out it wasn't blasphemy. He's actually the one who is God, who's worthy of worship. And so when he says you have to be making disciples of me, and you have to baptize into me, we should take him seriously. Baptism is this pledge of allegiance. It's this devotion. It's where you go all in for Jesus. It's this public, visible display that you are sharing in the death of Jesus in order to share in the life of Jesus. Here's one of my favorite scholars, a guy named N.T. Wright. I Here's what he says on baptism. He says, baptism is not an optional extra for followers of Jesus. Baptism is the public, physical, and visible way in in which someone is marked out, branded almost, with the holy name. It's where you, you take on the name of Father and Son and Spirit. It's where he takes you in. This is not optional. This is, this is the initiation. This is where you enroll in the school. It's not the culmination. It's the beginning. So if you want to enroll in the, the course to follow the teacher, be baptized. And then the teaching, as he says, it really never ends. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Teaching them to obey me. Again, he's very me-centric here. Now, this phrase is actually really startling to me. Um, Because of how the history of interpretation on the teachings of Jesus is just all over the place. Let me just give a few for instances. There's a lot of people who don't think that you need to obey all that Jesus commands. The, really, one of the kind of dominant traditional readings, you could call it the Catholic reading, is when you get to areas like the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermons of Jesus, there's, there's really a double standard and not exaggerating. The clergy have one standard and the laity have another standard. They have different names for these things. There's the precepts, which are for everyone, and then there's the councils, which are for the clergy. And so you you don't actually have to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Only some people have to obey everything that Jesus commanded. But here's the thing. That's not at all what Jesus says here. Jesus says that a life of a disciple, all disciples, not just clergy, not just pastors and preachers, all disciples, your, your life is measured by what he calls fruitfulness. He says, you, you will know a tree by its fruit. And so he says, it's not enough to hear these words of mine. The one who's blessed is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And so here he says, I want you to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. It means all of us, all of it, the commands of Jesus. But there's another reading. This is more like the Lutheran reading. I'm not saying this to like dump on monastics or Lutherans, but this is just historical facts. Instead of seeing the sermon as something that only a few can attain, Luther saw it as something that no one could attain. He says the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to make you realize that you can't do it. So, well, Jesus certainly says that we have to do it. And then he says we have to go around the whole world asking other people to do it. Not as a basis for our salvation. He comes to us 
doubters and hesitant, limping along. He comes to us, and that's where we're baptized. But then we're taught to obey and to grow over time into maturity. Allison calls this view the impossible ideal. And what it means is you don't actually have to do this either. No one does, not even the clergy. And then there's the view that I was raised in, many churches of Christ were, which basically saw the teachings of Jesus as an old covenant teaching. That the new covenant didn't come in until Pentecost. And so anything before Pentecost, you could sort of ignore. The teachings of Jesus were old covenant law keeping and we've moved on from Jesus. Now that's not an exaggeration. That is the view of many people. But for the earliest Christians, and for Matthew, and for Jesus, his teachings are not the problem. They're the paradigm. They're not a flaw. They're the foundation. Dallas Willard, he says, the disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy-duty model of the Christian. It's the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. We are disciples to make disciples who go and who are taught to obey all that he, all that he in, instructs us. It's also interesting that he says all the things that I have commanded you. Past tense. Now he's not denying that he continues to communicate with people. But the foundation of the people of God is the thing that was delivered in the cornerstone and then the foundation built by the apostles and prophets in the first century. The scriptures are the guide for the eternal church. All the things that he already has commanded, the, the body of teaching in the gospels. So this is maybe a, too cute, uh, and I may regret saying this. But I'm convinced that we, we, we I'm not totally convinced. So let me uh, state my hesitations even before I say it. I don't think we need to be Jesus for the mission of God to move forward. I think we need to obey Jesus for the mission of God to move forward. Now, be Jesus, I get it. We mean be his hands and feet. We mean imitate Jesus, be like Jesus. Sure, 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 sure. So my hesitation, mark it as red, I get it. But if I'm being Jesus, who's Jesus going to be? <laughs> I need Jesus to be Jesus. I need the authority of heaven and on earth to be carried by someone besides me, someone besides our church. Because if people come to me, if people come to Oikos, if people come to you looking for Jesus, they need to find him, not you. They need to find someone who has all authority, not hypocritical, fragmented, limping along authority. Jesus can be Jesus, and you can point to him. You obey Jesus and let him be Jesus. Now, I may regret that because one day I'm going to preach a sermon. It's going to be called Be Jesus, and I'm going to, you're going to bring this up. You don't have to be somebody's savior. You don't have to be somebody's teacher. Jesus says, I'm the rabbi. I don't even want you to go by that title. You don't have to be someone's king. Jesus says, it's mine. I'm the authority. You just need to be an ambassador who points to me. A messenger, a sent one. Yes, in the authority of Jesus, with the gifts of Jesus. But can we let be Jesus be Jesus? So, let me bring it back to audacity as we reflect on this last line. 
He says, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So his power is there, right? He has the power to put us back together. He has the power to forgive sin. He has the power to heal. He has the power to cast out demons. He has the power to calm the storms. He has the power to raise the dead. He has power, but it's this promise that really captures me. The promise of his presence. I'm calling this the audacity of love. I really struggle with what to call it. Is it the audacity of faith? Yes. A, a faith that just believes in Jesus. And so if he's raised from the dead, then who am I to hold my mouth shut? How can I keep from, from singing and from shouting and from preaching and from sharing? Is it the audacity of hope? And then I'm like, that's Barack Obama's book. So I can't use that. But what about the audacity of love? Can you just think about this for a minute? The audacity of love. Imagine that you were loved by the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Just if that were true, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be good news? If the God who created you sent his son to die for you because of his love for you, there's some audacity, some security that comes. Now, evangelism for most of us is marked by insecurity. We don't know the answers. We don't know what to do. We're just in our own heads. We don't really want them to open the door. I don't know the third question. But if you know that you are loved and you know that I am with you always, even to the end of the age, it changes things. The other day I had a meeting with our landlord who kind of gets to tell us what it costs to be here or whether or not we can be here. And Maggie asked me how I felt about it. And I said, well... I went in with the Spirit of God, so what more can you ask for? <laughs> it's just, I, I had to do some kind of centering prayer to remember that God was with me, and that's enough. And it changes my whole posture. It changes the audacity of what you can ask for. And I was trying to be audacious in that meeting with what I was asking for. Because it, it says that whether or not I succeed or fail, whether or not I'm rejected or kicked out, I'm still loved. And whether or not, like, I'm limping along, worshiping and doubting, and I'm still loved, he still comes to me? That's audacity, it seems to me. But there's this other dimension of audacity where it's like you look at someone and you know that they are also broken like you. You're, they've got sin. And they've got all the ways they've been sinned against. They've got wounds that imprint them. They've got what feel like traps that hold them in bondage. They may not use words like bondage, but they would use words like patterns and cycles. And I just can't get out. Wouldn't it be like a, just a blindness, an unloving blindness, to not share in an audacious way the good news that Jesus can do something about, that he has the authority that they're looking for to put them back together. He says, not only being loved that gives us audacity, but loving gives us the audacity to share. And so I'm not, 
I'm not coming at this even from that middle part where he says you need to go and make disciples and baptize them and to teach them to obey everything that I've committed. Oh, that's all true. That's there. But my appeal to you is not from guilt to measure up to that command, but to remember that you are loved and to remember that they are too. And I think if we can remember the audacity of love, we will step out more vocally than we ever have. Many years ago, I got in over my head with something. It was a, a house renovation. My wife and I bought a foreclosure at one point, and we were like, we renovated this house. And what that meant was that we painted that house. And then we had someone else put floors in, and we felt really good about it. And so then we bought another house that was another foreclosure and needed a big renovation. And we said, we're going to move into this house in 30 days. And we're going to take out that wall and that wall. We're going to redo the master bathroom and all the kitchen. And I'm going to rebuild the kitchen cabinets myself. And we have 30 days in this limited budget. And then we told the news to Don and Denise. And they didn't use the word audacity. But they could have. But you know what Don didn't do? He didn't send me a YouTube video on all the projects that I had to do. He didn't send me Ikea instructions on, like, new cabinets. Because what I needed wasn't a manual for how to do it. I needed help. I needed a person, not an instruction sheet. So Denise took on the kids, basically for a month. And Don was there working with me at what seemed like to, like, 1 or 2 a.m. every night, just pouring himself into those projects. And I, th I think that's basically what Jesus is saying. He's like, I get the audacity of make disciples of all nations. All nations is pretty big. Heaven and on earth, all authority. That's pretty big. I know what I'm asking, and I know you don't need a YouTube video on a how-to, and you don't need an instruction manual. He says, I've, I've got some teachings here. What you need is a person to come help. And he says, I am with you. I'm with you always. I'm all the days, which means on your good days and your bad days, on the days you feel blessed and on the days you feel broken. He's all the days. The days you feel like I can't even, he's still there with you always. In Matthew 10, the first time he commissions his disciples, he sends them out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He gives them authority. Then he says, guys, you need to know this. You're going to be flocked and mogged, um, um, mocked. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be arrested. I'm going to send div division into your families. People are going to hate you. I'm going to send you out as into wolves. He's, he, but he says, but don't be afraid. It's like, Jesus, I'm afraid after all those things you just He says, don't worry. And he says, don't be anxious. What? You just said that I'm, I'm sent just into this little place and I'm just going to be rejected and misunderstood and persecuted and beaten. And then you said, don't be afraid. Why? It's the one time Matthew talks about the Holy Spirit for the disciples. And he says, it's because the spirit of your father is with you and he will give you the words to say. He says, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body. But he says, fear God, the one who can who can destroy body and soul in hell. He says, there is a higher authority in this realm. He says, don't be afraid, little sparrow. He sees you, 
and you're of more value than the little birds, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Always. Could, could we end in a prayer exercise? I had a timer. Kels, what time is it? Oh, no. Let's do a quick prayer. Let's do a quick prayer. Would you close your eyes? Um, open up your hands on your palms if you're comfortable. Would you bow your head low? Would you just recognize the authority? I'm going to kind of just do a quick guided prayer and then perhaps the Lord will send us out. Would you give the Lord glory? You can do it out loud. You can do it silently. He is the one who made you. He is the creator. From him are all things and to him are all things. So give him a few of the things. Could you give a glory to Jesus? You see, Jesus was in a grave. And then he walked out of the grave. Jesus went to the depths of hell. Halloween has nothing on him. And he walked out. He has defeated the tyranny of death. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Would you just give him glory? And would you give him your insecurities when it comes to evangelism? That hesitation, that feeling that it takes so much audacity. And I'm afraid of the audacity that it takes. Who am I? I don't have the words. I can't speak. I'm a man of unclean lips. We are limping along. We worship, yes, but Lord, we doubt. And would you speak truth from Scripture to those things? That Jesus says, I am with you. I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. If God is for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And would you just commission and dedicate and say, Lord, if you are with me, I will go. You see, the Lord doesn't just call you to be a disciple. The Lord calls you to make a disciple. And so would you ask the Lord, who this week? Would you ask him in your words out loud or just mumble them along? Just say, Lord, would you give me a name this week? Where do you want me to go? Ask him. Ask him, who do you want me to teach? If you have not been baptized, ask him, Lord, are you calling me into the waters? 
God, send us, Oikos Church, send us into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, into our dorms, into our schools. Send us into our city. Lord, give us words. But mostly, Lord, give us the audacity of love. Assure our hearts that you move toward us even as we doubt. And then fill our hearts with love for our neighbor. Your great commission is so great and big, it's intimidating. But Lord, we are your servants to be sent out. Empower us for your mission, for your kingdom, for your glory. Amen.